welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I am James Wong. I'm Dave Rome. I am Kaylee Fretz. And wait, do, do we have one more person with us today? And I'm Zach Edwards. The ghost uh, of Zach, Zach is back. We, oh, we're, Zach. we're all here, still recording remotely, but we don't really want to go another week, yet another week, without our resident pro mechanic from the Boulder Groupetto. So we've brought him back today. And hopefully for all future episodes from here on out, which also means that we have an especially good episode today. It's going to be so good. That is going to finish, finally, again, with the return of Ask a Mechanic. And Zach has promised, even though he hasn't verbally told me this, I'm making him <laughs> promise, to not be grumpy. Will not be grumpy. All positivity. Okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm looking at Zach in, in my little Google Hangout window, and all I see is like, you know, unicorns and rainbows. So I think, I think we're going to hold him to that. <laughs> Uh, before, before we dive into the tech, uh, Kaylee and Zach, you guys actually participated in something that was decidedly not necessarily all rainbows and unicorns and feel good, happy. Not for me anyway. Uh, no. you guys did a whole bunch of laps up our local Flagstaff mountain. What was up with that? Uh, well, uh, basically Zach's partner, Ruth Winder, the current U S national champion, Trek Sega Fredo rider. Uh, we we, we kind of played a game of chicken. It was, it was your it idea. Was, it was kind of my idea. And both of us were like, I was like, we should do an Eversting. And she was like, we should do an Eversting. And I was like, we should do an Eversting. And then we kind of went back and forth for a while. And I think both of us were kind of expecting the other one to, you know, to turn away, to be like, no, this is a terrible idea. This is like, we shouldn't do this. This is going to be bad. And neither of us did. Neither of us turned away. And so we ended up last Wednesday uh attempting an everest and ruth didn't want to do it on some short little climb which is sort of the the popular thing to do these days uh she wanted to do it on an icon which happened to be super flag here in boulder and uh well to cut a, a rather long and by long i mean like 13 hours story <laughs> quite short uh she finished with much cursing of my name in the final laps, as Zach can confirm. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't. <laughs> uh, also much cursing of my name uh, in the final laps because I got to lap nine, which was about 17,000-ish feet of climbing, about 52, 5,300 meters. And I fell apart, uh, collapsed like a flan in a cupboard, and didn't just couldn't do it anymore. So she well, competed, she completed should... it and I did not because, uh, I mean, this is very obvious. She's significantly more talented bike rider than I am. And I just, I fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we should perhaps point out for, for those of you who have not ridden Flagstaff Mountain here in, in Colorado, in Boulder. Um, I mean, as you said, you know, Ruth kind of wanted to do something that was, you know, on a climb that was a little bit more interesting than sort of like the usual five-ish, seven percent-ish grade that most people seem to do with Everesting. Uh, Flagstaff is not necessarily a easy climb. I mean, it has its moments for sure, but uh, she went all the way up to the mailboxes and it gets steep up there. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Uh, and, and actually, maybe the hardest part was the, was the descent, um, sort of like physically and mentally, and it's long. And for me, actually, like my neck ended up sort of failing me. And I think it's because we were basically tucked and, you know, it's a descent where you hit 80 kilometers an hour or so. Uh, it's very twisty. Uh, theoretically, it's not you're not just like a limits, straight down a road. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, for I, two I, minutes and then turn it, flip it. Right, you don't just get on straight down and flip it. And and yes, yeah, sorry, I was definitely going exactly whatever the speed limit is on Superfly. Yeah. Uh, 25. Uh, 25 miles an hour. Yeah, that, that's that's how fast we were going. Um, no, yes. Yeah, so the, so the, the the climb was not ideal, uh, but the bigger issue is that so that the women's record prior to actually today which is when Katie Hall just dropped the record down to like 10 hours. The previous record was 12.30. And so we started off on a pace that would have gotten us about 12 hours. And for both of us, that turned out to be just not a, a reasonable thing to be trying to do uh, on that particular climb. Because, yeah, you know, it's got this stretch up near the top called the wall that's like 15, 20%. And I thought I had low gears. It turns out I didn't have low, low enough gears. Just, you know, <laughs> four, 45 RPM in a 34 32 like just miserable and my lower back screaming at me and my arms getting literally my arms are starting to cramp and it was a horrible experience uh so yeah, ruth, did not enjoy ruth did not enjoy it either it was a lap so she had to do 14 and two-thirds laps i think it was lap 13 you said that she was kind of 
cursing my name on the way up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> the way the way she described it was it was a really nice five hour ride followed by seven hours of terribleness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We both got to like hour five or six and we're like feeling pretty good and we're like, wow, like that's we've already done a big day and we are we're less than halfway through. <laughs> less than halfway through. Yeah, it's pretty pretty brutal. Uh, if I if anyone oh. else is, is thinking about giving Everesting a shot, I do think that doing it on a cool climb is cool. Like I don't the, the five five minutes up and down some boring straight climb like that just sounds awful. If you're gonna go do it, do it on something cool. But yeah, make sure that you're make sure that you're geared right and big thing make sure that you pace it right and uh you don't get a little big for your britches like like we did and go out a bit hard and then fall apart the end's gonna suck either way but you want it to be doable and just to add to that um maybe train for it kaylee (laughs) training's cheating dave you know it's uh okay my bad I, i just don't believe in it yeah like fundamentally i think that um anyone who trains is cheating I mean, even Ruth, who trains, I don't think had ever done a ride longer than six hours before. Yeah. Like yeah. Most women's races are three to four hours. I mean, hours. ironically, yeah, I, I actually had done many more very long rides than Ruth ever had because, yeah, because her races are three, three, three and a half hours, they're 120K, you know, that, I think her, her day ended up being well over 200 kilometers, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah something like that. Nasty. Of all uphill. Nasty. <laughs> anyway. Well, uh, I think there are plenty of reasons why I tend to stick to the gear side of things because uh, the most consecutive laps I've done of Superflag is uh, one and a half. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that fit, and I did five throughout the day with some work in between, and I was pretty well destroyed. <laughs> and that sounds like plenty. Uh, yeah. Shall we talk tech? Let's talk tech. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk tech. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I would imagine that Ruth has a monstrous Strava file on this ride, but... Uh, Strava actually just underwent a pretty big shakeup in their business model. And I think it's safe to say that a lot of people are not at all happy about it, uh, mostly because the company took a whole bunch of features that were once free and moved them over into the paid subscription side of the site, which uh, is seemingly a trend that they have been, you know, kind of pushing pretty hard in the last few months, basically taking things away. Um, Kaylee, what is going on with Strava? Well, so I wrote a whole thing on this uh and a letter from the editor a kind of editorial on this and and you i understand what they're doing from a business perspective and i actually kind of agree with it uh, but it, that doesn't make it any sort of less annoying for the end user and it, and it's sort of compounded that annoyance is compounded by the fact that i don't think strava was particularly uh they didn't pay particularly close attention to what their user base wanted over the last couple years and that's really right now coming to bite them in the ass, right? Because when you make a pivot to a, a, a fully subscription model, which is kind of, ba- which is basically what they're doing. They're, they're, they're stop, they're not gonna do like the ad partnerships that they were doing. You know, re- remember when Strava used to like change colors when you'd use a Wahoo and things like that? Oh yeah, I remember, so, it was very annoying. Yes, yeah, so they're not gonna do that stuff anymore because frankly, they never really made much money at it. They're now pivoting back and they're fully gonna focus on their user and turning that user into a subscriber, which in general, I think is a good thing because when your user is your customer, you work for the customer and you're not then selling the user to advertisers, right? It, it's it's not all that different from what we do with Velo Club, which is, you know, if you, if it, because we have an audience that pays to keep our lights on, we work for that audience. If that audience wasn't paying, the only way for us to keep the lights on is to sell that audience to advertisers. No, I mean, I think, I think Kaylee, a lot of people who are listening to the podcast read the letter that you wrote. And I feel like if Strava throughout its history had exhibited a tendency and a desire to really cater primarily to their users, then I feel like they would have had a lot more success in kind of striking that emotional chord with people to get people to kind of you know move from being a free user to a paid user, but I mean they they really have done an awful lot over the years to really make it seem like they're you know I certainly got the impression that they were funded by an awful lot of VC money and were just kind of like drunk on cash, um, 
and you know again like to i guess to you know can you clarify what exactly changed from a user perspective as far as what features got taken away because that's kind of the offending part isn't it yeah so so the big thing is that they they went back and they decided okay well what what's our actual sort of core value proposition like what why do why are people using strava and one of the original reasons why people are using strava is the segment leaderboard right that's sort of even if it's not how you use Strava, like me, for example, I don't really care that much about segment leaderboards. I care more about just sort of like tracking how much I'm riding. And I think a lot of people are like that. But still, if you go back to sort of like the the original days of Strava, those segment leaderboards, like that was the invention that that pushed Strava off the ground, right? That was why everyone jumped on it, because all of a sudden you had a way to just compare yourself with every other rider who had ever ridden a stretch of road. You didn't have to be on a ride with them to do that comparison. It was It's really cool. I mean, it's baked into the name of the site. Yeah, it's, you know, it, the segment, right? Uh, so they stuck that behind a paywall, and that's a really big deal. Uh, it, again, from a business perspective, I totally understand why they would do that. But from a user perspective, yeah, this is something that's been free for a very long time and is sort of a core functionality of the site. And now, to get anything more than a top 10, you're going to have to pay. Uh, I will say, you know, my wife opened up her phone the other day, flipped open her phone after going for a ride, couldn't see where she landed on a leaderboard, and then signed up for Strava. So I do think it's going to be an effective means of converting people into subscribers. But like I said, still quite annoying. Now, there's a couple other things that they did. Uh, they, they broke some of their... Uh, well, the, the, essentially the leaderboards going private broke some of their API stuff. So some of the third-party apps that work with Strava segments are either not working anymore or working differently. Uh, some kind of major ones like VeloViewer seems seem to be largely okay as long as you are, are, are a Strava subscriber. Um, but still, kind of an annoying thing, and they didn't give developers a whole lot of notice on that front. So kind of another reason for... A certain section of Strava's user base to be a little bit angry about that. Uh, they also stuck stuff like their their routing feature behind the paywall, and I think personally that's one of the most useful things within Strava is because I I love just exploring and creating routes and the and the heat map itself combined with the routing feature is a really powerful tool. And now that you have to pay for as well. I mean, it all seems perfectly reasonable from from the surface. It just is kind of shocking that for as long as Strava has been around, that it's taken them this long to just identify or just you know state explicitly that this is what their core functionality is gonna be and that they are asking for you to pay for it. So a little bit of background there is that the founders actually recently came back to head the company in the last, I think, six or eight months, uh, which is relevant, right? Like a lot of this stuff that happened with sort of Strava losing its way happened under different leadership. And I think you've really felt a difference in tone from Strava in the last six months as a result of that. But yeah, there, there's no question that this is, you know, they're putting the genie back in the bottle. It's, it's going to piss a lot of people off. The fact that they weren't great from a user service perspective over the last couple of years does them absolutely no favors. Uh, but end of the day, if you want Strava to continue to exist, I think this is, this is a necessity. And, you know, what I wrote in that piece is if you love Strava, and I'm t not telling you that you have to love Strava, but if you love Strava, you should pay for it because that's how you get a good product and a good product that actually works for you and not a product that turns your rides blue when you're on Oahu. You want you want to pay for the things that you value. Uh, and so if you, if you like Strava, then pay for it. If you don't like Strava, don't pay for it. That's how these things work. Or even if you just use it. I mean, because I can't remember how long ago this was, but um, you know, on the regular pod, I remember I think it was Neil who who kind of made the analogy that Strava had become sort of like a, almost like a public utility in, her, in terms of cycling and just activities in general. And it's almost now like, what would we do or what would a lot of people do without Strava? So, you know, yeah, I mean, this obviously is angering a lot of people, but, you know, yeah, if you are using it, then it seems reasonable to expect to pay for it. Yeah. I, you know, I think the last, the last funding round I think they had was in 2016 and they have been sort of close to profitable since then, but we're not, we're never quite profitable. They remain, they're not profitable right now. And so fingers crossed this sort of puts them into the black and, and on a trajectory that keeps them around because yeah, I, I very much think of them as like a public utility. I think they're exceptionally valuable uh, to you know, to, to cyclists like me. And I think that as a result, I have personally, I have no problem, no problem paying them, even though they've done some slightly annoying things. 
Well, uh, Strava has obviously made a bunch of mistakes, but hopefully now that the original founders are back, best of luck with them that they are going to be able to right the ship and make it so that people do actually fall in love with again. So we'll see where that goes. Um, on a happier note, let's talk about this new Cannondale scalpel that just dropped the other day because that thing looks amazing. Uh, Dave, you wrote the article on that, uh, and that bike, by all accounts, has always you know, kind of pushed the envelope a little bit in terms of cross-country race bikes, and it looks even better now, and I uh, may or may not have already re requested a medium test sample. Uh, Dave, what are we looking at here? What is this thing? Oh, jealous on that one. You uh, yeah, gotten I mean, a large, it, James. Gotten a large. Come on. Oh, did I, Zach did I and I are both a large. Again? What are you doing? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I clearly just checked the wrong box again. I don't know how I keep doing Damn that. It. Weird. Yeah. <sighs> Um, what, yeah, you, I mean, you, that's... You're shopping for an S-Works Enduro anyway. What are you doing thinking about a scalpel? Eh? XC bikes are sweet. XC bikes are sweet. I totally agree. I'm convinced that that all these this whole gravel trend next, cross-country cross racing, for sure, because all of us are going to be like, whoa, dirt is fun, but these gravel bikes are real stupid Terrible. and real bad, <laughs> and so I'm going to get an actual cross-country bike and have even more fun. That's, that's my prediction. Mm. I mean, I've seen a lot of people on gravel bikes on mountain bike trails recently yes and they don't look like they're having nearly as oh, much oh i've got a story bike. that i can share with you guys after we're done recording it's a good one uh anyway dave how much fun are people going to be having on this thing plenty uh yeah so i mean it, it's basically the the scalpel the new scalpel is in line with where cross-country bikes have been going in recent years as cross-country race courses have gotten crazy technical and crazy hard uh so yeah i mean the bikes are taking all sorts of design cues from the trail bikes and enduro bikes that uh you know people are riding on gravity trails um and yeah they're basically making a bike that can descend far better than cross-country bikes ever used to uh but still climb um with plenty of efficiency and speed so the scalpel really ticks all those boxes it's got you know a slacker head angle it's got a longer wheelbase um and then at the same time, it's like, you know, the seat tube angle has been steepened to get your weight back over the front wheel to overcome that slacker head angle. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 basically got all the design elements that uh, we talk about as being good in trail bikes. Um, and it's super light. Well, and there are also, uh, to clarify, there are two scalpel families here, not just one. Um, yep. So the regular scalpel is 100 mil travel front and rear. Yes. And that is obviously the more, you know, kind of like the more racing oriented of the two. Yep. Yeah, and it's using um, their lefty. And and what about the back end of this of these bikes though? I mean, scalp uh Cannondale kind of like, you know, reached back into its history books it's a little very bit much the design of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's it's gone to like a leaf spring kind of design in the back end where uh they're using the carbon fiber to uh to what it was uh, initially intended for, where they can make it incredibly flexible in one direction. Uh, and they've sort of taken that to a whole new level where that's, uh, they're basically claiming that they are achieving enough flex to uh, achieve the same amount of movement as what would otherwise happen with a bearing pivot, uh, which is quite cool. Um, so they're, they're claiming that their single pivot design, which is lighter and stiffer and simpler, uh, offers the same suspension characteristics as a four-bar suspension design. So I think all four of us were riding cross-country bikes in the early oh, yeah. 2000s when the first scalpel came out. There, oh, yeah. There is a striking resemblance. I'm really sad the new one, the seat stays aren't called EPO, <laughs> like the original one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it is. It's, 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 they've... they've They've reached in their bag of tricks uh, way at the bottom, way down in 2002. It's like six, six no, like five to... I can't remember. It one, I think. Seven or yeah. something. Well, it was a long it wasn't time the ago. first one, though. Yeah. It was like the second one. Yeah, because the, yeah, the first one had like aluminum seat stays, and then they went to the... It wasn't really... They were more plastic yeah. seat stays with the flexi yeah. chain stays. Bag of tricks. But I mean, Cannondale has a pretty long history of introducing concepts and ideas, you know, sort of like well before the market is ready for them, or, you know, you could also argue well before, you know, like the, te the technology is fully baked. I mean, that's um, too when the lefty had a D-cell battery in it to to lock it out yeah which was pretty yep. sweet oh i remember that one <laughs> yeah bring back the d-cell so anyway we have the regular scalpel 100 100 front and rear and then yep. we now have also this scalpel se which it's kind of more of a trail bike really because it's a 120 120 bike mm. so what's the what's different about that one so it's the exact same frame 
uh, but basically by putting a longer travel fork on it, uh, the this is, uh, the geometry then gets a little bit slacker, uh, and the the wheelbase gets a little bit longer. Uh, and then Cannondale have basically made the build to match. So rather than have a rigid seat post like the racing version has, they've put a dropper seat post on. They've gone wider in the tires. They've put a riser handlebar on the front to bring the front end up even higher. Um, so yeah, they've basically just trail biked their cross country race bike. So sorry, it's it's a hundred rear, one twenty front then, but no, it's uh, one it's one twenty front. You're right. They've changed the oh. linkage. Yeah. No, they just they just threw yeah. a longer shock. Oh, on okay, it, so they? it's the same frame then, but a different linkage. Longer shock or longer swing link? I haven't. I, I, yeah, I'm I not think they entirely just stuck sure a longer on, shock uh, on, on how they're achieving that extra <laughs> twenty mil. In the back. I feel like we're gonna have to edit this part a little bit to make it sound less dumb. Uh, nope, yeah. nope. We leave the dumbness in. Uh, we know it's 120 <laughs> oh, okay. mil. It is more it's, fun. Yeah. It's a, it's the better version. Like, let's be honest. All right. Well, then I, the I want to just point out that I was idea. correct in saying that it was a 120-120 bike. But either way. Yes, it is. Um, I mean, I, I, I dare say, I mean, this almost kind of falls into the down country cattle, uh, category that Pinkbike has coined, no? Yes, that is exactly what it is. And the 100 mil uh, version is a Groundton bike. <laughs> it's a flavel oh, bike. You mean a bike? bike? <laughs> <laughs> Dual suspension. <laughs> Flavel race bike, though. Flavel race oh, bike. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Please, no. Kill it before it makes more. Nope. Nope. We've birthed well, this either thing way, we have to we race should it like be... our own. Yeah. Well, either way, uh, my test sample should be showing up here in a couple weeks, I think, which means that I'm going to have to be riding uphill a whole bunch more. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose by some miracle, it may show up as a large if they messed up, but I don't think it's going to. So sorry, Zach. Sorry, Kate. I'm sending a note off to Cannondale as soon as we're done recording here. Did you, did you get the right. 120 or the 100? Uh, I went with the full on, the full silly bike. I went with the 100. Sweet. Hmm. Granted, yep. bike. The, the I mean, 9.5 I, I figured... kilogram one or like the, the more affordable? Uh, you know, model. that's a good question. I didn't specify. Uh, so I, I, I told the Cannondale media PR guy that basically all I wanted was a, uh, the, the full racy version and if the, the exact build kit wasn't really particularly important. So I just want to check out sort of like, you know, the ride and handling features, that kind of thing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like a, whatever, fourteen fifteen thousand dollars bike. Joe, Joe, Cannondale PR guy. Uh, if you're listening, just let me know what I got to do to make that thing show up as a large. Ooh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> It's quite a, quite a, quite an offering there. Huh. All right. Well, speaking of cheating, which Kaylee apparently is not above himself uh, to do, not for the right bike. Kaylee, you wrote another article recently that deals with cheating. But speaking of uh, virtual cheating, actually, not like real cheating, and this is like cheating for riding inside. So, uh, you know, Zwift now that Zwift racing is this big thing. Uh, especially now, you know, with so many people who were under kind of, you know, lockdown, lockdown restrictions and that sort of thing. A lot of people have gotten into Zwift racing and it's kind of highlighted this issue that Zwift has with virtual, uh, I mean, I don't, I mean, it's not really virtual doping exactly, but what do you, what do you call it exactly? What's going on here and what is Zwift doing to try and fix this? So yeah, this is happening. Uh, people are actually cheating to ride their bicycles nowhere even faster they're doing it uh this is a, a a commentary on on really the human condition i think but basically there's a whole bunch of different ways to cheat on zwift some of them are intentional i would say most of them are probably unintentional you know things like if your power meter is off or if your trainer calibration is off or if you put in the wrong weight or something accidentally like these are all things that can happen because because basically Zwift uses a watts per kilo calculation combined with your height to determine how fast you're going within the game. A watts per kilo, I think everyone who's listening to this will know what watts per kilo is, but you know, it's the amount of power you put out over your body weight. Uh, and then they combine that with three different sort of rider sizes, which each have a different kind of aerodynamic profile. And so, you know, if you're if you're five feet tall, you get one, and if you're six foot five, you get the big one. And the big one obviously has more aerodynamic drag than the small one. But anyway, that's how, that's the sort of basic functionality of Zwift. And that, that from, from there is where the cheating opportunities lie. So the most sort of obvious and easy one, and I, in the story I compared this to like mid-90s EPO doping in that it's 
completely ubiquitous and basically impossible to detect is just changing your weight in the game, right? And that all that takes is if you drop your weight by five kilos in the game, you just got significantly faster for the amount of power that you're putting out. Uh, stuff like that is almost impossible to, 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 to spot, right? They, they, they can't really. So what Zwift is doing, there's a couple different things here. The, on, on the sort of amateur side, there's racing, right? There's A, B, C, and D racing. Each one of those is separated by a sort of watts per kilo uh, range. And the system is basically designed to prevent sandbagging. So they're actually beta testing a system right now within the Crit City course, where if you, it, it takes a look at your recent five minute and one minute power in Zwift. And if those figures don't match up with the category you're trying to race, it flags you and it says, hey, like you should go race with the people that are actually your speed. And if you, decide to race with the slower group anyway, it sticks a little green cone over your head, the cone of shame, and it actually, shame. And it actually throttles you within the game. So it doesn't matter how fast you go, you're gonna go as fast as, as everybody else. Now, th again, this is in, this is in beta. The uh, Zwift won't provide a whole lot of details of sort of like where the trigger points are for these things. But, but like I said, basically what we know is they're, they're taking your historical power data, what they know you can do, and then trying to keep people in the right categories within the actual game. It's not going to prevent people from having a, a wonky power meter and riding around at seven watts per kilo for an hour faster than Chris Froome. It's not going to prevent people from lying about their weight. That's basically impossible. That, there's sort of a, a couple other human systems for that, that once you get into the higher echelons of, of Zwift racing, um, but there's no real automated system for that. There is on the other side of this, the sort of the pro-am circuit, right? I mean, we had the tour for all, was it last week or the week before? Bunch of world tour teams all racing each other. Like this is, this is now officially a big deal, right? This is, this is athletes gaining value for their sponsors via Zwift. And so therefore you kind of need, you need a, a level playing field. It's important just in the same way that anti-doping is important outside. And so on this, for this particular uh, type of racing, the, the sort of like the pro racing, there is a human solution. So there's, a, there's an organization called Zada, uh, which originally stood for the Zwift Anti-Doping Agency and now stands for Zwift Accuracy and Data something. Uh, stick with... It's the Zwift Police. It's the Zwift basically. Police, yeah. And, it, and it's literally, it's like a bunch of data scientists and computer scientists and people that are very, very good with math. And when you do a Zwift race, they have all of your power data. They have all, all of your everything. They have everything. And they can actually go in and, and using various data science tools, figure out whether those, whether your power numbers are legit. And they'll actually, they'll make you, if they think they might not be legit, they'll make you go do lab testing to confirm that you can put out that much power. Or they'll make you go outside and ride something on Strava to confirm that you can do, do that much power. And they basically, they can verify just like, you know, the World Anti-Doping Agency verifies outdoor efforts, basically. Zada verifies indoor efforts. Uh, the whole thing is somewhat absurd. Again, you know, this is like racing faster nowhere. Uh, but, it, you know, it does matter because, like I said, we have pros now racing in this thing, gaining value for sponsors via Zwift. That matters. And then on the amateur side... It's it's a game, right? The value of Zwift is in the gamification, and so if you ruin the game by cheating, no one will want to play the game anymore. And so it's very understandable that Zwift is spending a lot of time and energy trying to solve these things. And the automated solutions that they're building, like like I said, the you know the beta that's going on in Crit City right now, are getting more and more powerful all the time. So you're going to start seeing. You're going to start seeing more and more Zwift athletes flagged with the cone of shame for stuff that maybe they didn't even know they were doing because the system has picked up, uh, you know, that their power meter is reading wonky or that their trainer is not calibrated right or things like that that they can pick up in the actual data. Now, a few months ago, uh, at one, you know, this is kind of when Zwift was just starting to get going with the whole virtual racing thing. Um, you know, I, I did an interview with Eric Min, the, you know, the, the head of Zwift, and you know, he made it super clear that virtual racing is, like, it is the future of Zwift. I mean, they were basically just banking on it. And, you know, this is clearly a huge, huge problem with Zwift because if people don't have confidence that 
you know, the races that they're participating in are, are valid, then, uh, you know, they're not going to want to do it. They just, they, there's just not going to be any point. So, I mean, Zwift is clearly pretty motivated to, to kind of fix this. But I mean, do we have any sense for how likely it is that they'll actually be able to fix it? Well, like I said, the, at the upper echelons, so like, you know, the real professional racing, if, if we were going to... So, so Eric Min has talked about this before. His dream is like filling a stadium in London and having Peter Sagan race Greg Van Avermaet on Zwift in the middle of a stadium, right? Yeah, I mean, he told me he wanted to fill Madison Square Garden with, like, virtual racing fans. Exactly. And so in that case, they have Zada and they have actual people who can go and, and verify that the that the data is accurate, right? That, that the power meters are accurate, that the trainers are accurate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For amateur Zwifting, I mean, I mean to be perfectly honest, it's, 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 it's no, there is no greater guarantee of, of accurate fair Zwift racing as when you go line up at your local Cat 3 race where there is absolutely no anti-doping whatsoever, right? So the systems are, are coming around. They're getting better and better, and they can pick up a lot of the stuff. They can pick up on a lot of the stuff that's accidental in particular, uh, but stuff like, you know, weight doping on Zwift, it, there's, no, there's no, at least at this point in time, there is no way for Zwift to know that you just took 10 kilos off your weight unless you start riding around at like you know inhuman watt per kilo numbers which for i mean at least for me it would take way more than 10 kilos i'd have to take like 30 kilos off before i started, before i started riding around at inhuman numbers so uh, yeah at the moment you know there are solutions it's getting better but there's no there's no magic bullet just yet and we've seen that with the the slightly inhuman numbers uh, actually flag flagging known pros to say, hey, there's something suspicious with your numbers and like, what booting them out of the game, basically. My favorite thing is the um, pop-up when that happens says you missed yeah. you missed your calling to go pro or something like that. It's happened to a couple <laughs> yeah. of like, professionals. It's great. <laughs> I feel like besides like current EU full lockdown coronavirus, pros trying to make content for sponsors, at the end of the day, if you're riding your bicycle inside on a trainer, it's for training like it's the same to me cheating on zwift is the same as like being the dude on the group ride that sits in the entire time but then out sprints everyone at the town line sprint like when, when cool, no one knows bro. that they're sprinting yeah like wh what have you accomplished like this is really dumb while screaming strava as like it's for training front. like on a training group ride you should be pulling on the front and like doing work so that when you get to an actual real bicycle race that you can actually then be fit yeah, I, I, it's going to be interesting. I think a lot of people would disagree with me on that. <laughs> oh, yes. But, like, there, there is... end, it's like call the trainer for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, Zach. Uh, you, you know, there's... I don't know. It, it's, you know, we're lucky. We, we work in the bike industry. We have time to go ride our bikes. I don't, I don't fault anybody for, for scratching the competitive itch in whatever way they want to scratch it. Cheating, however... Uh, to scratch that competitive itch riding inside is even more absurd than cheating in an outdoor bicycle race. And so shame on you if you've ever done it. I'm sure some of our listeners out there have cheated on their Zwift weight. Don't do it. <laughs> Go back, fix it. Be honest with how much you weigh on the Zwift. Because right now there's... I mean, it's not going to look as good on the Zwift race report. <laughs> Don't you think everyone should have an FTP of 350 or more? Uh, on Swift, everybody does. Yeah, I, yeah. I you know, yeah. I spent a lot, lot of time racing my bike over the years, and never encountered that many people with uh, <laughs> like five and a half watt per kilo thresholds. <laughs> hey, Kay Kaylee, times have changed. You know, training methods have advanced. Everyone's got a power meter now. You know, maybe people have just gotten faster. Maybe they were that fit, but they couldn't go around corners. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I, mean, I think Zach might be honest. something. maybe, maybe there's there are that many fit people out there. They just like incapable of going around corners, and so they, I never really noticed them in bicycle races because they didn't enter, <laughs> <laughs> or they did immediately. Or dropped. they got dropped immediately. Yeah, it's totally possible. You know. The you know lots of uh, lots of big engines out there, but outdoor bike racing is still a skill sport in a lot of ways, and indoor bike racing, there's things to be learned about it, but it's a little bit less so. 
Hmm. Anyway, well, you know we hate it. We hate it. So that's <laughs> true. We can't hide it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only people could see your faces right now on Google. All right, let's let's move on. I think this is enough to talk about cheating and virtual cheating and riding indoors in general because uh, we should be celebrating the fact that we have Zach back on the podcast Woo! because we were without Zach on Nerd Alert for oh, I don't know month and a half, four episodes, yeah. five episodes, maybe. Two months? For a while. Too long. It was sad. Too long, indeed. So, since we have Zach back here, I think it's time we should move on to a somewhat extended segment of Ask a Mechanic. Let's do it. All right. Zach, are you ready for question number one? And, Very and, ready. And, of course, everyone else can feel free to chime in here. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do it. All right, so I solicited a bunch of questions on Twitter, and some of them are actually pretty good here. So the first one is from, uh, I'm going to butcher this last name, and I know I've seen it before, uh, Jamie Surveyance. Uh He has a set of SRAM Rival hydraulic disc brakes on his gravel bike. Okay. And after about a year and a half of use, he said his brake levers have stopped fully returning. Ooh. He took the bike to his mechanic. He told him that this was fairly common with SRAM road brakes, which I don't know if that's necessarily true, but based on your experience, has SRAM resolved this issue if there is one, and what is he supposed to be doing about it? I would say if the brakes are fully, like, properly bled and his brake levers are still not returning, yes, that is a common issue. Um, On all of the mechanical shifting things, I would say SRAM has not resolved this. Um, I'd say it's... If your brake levers or your brakes are over a year or so old and they're remotely doing this, um, the next time they get bled, it adds like an extra five or 10 minutes. Um, Basically just pop the brake lever off, take out the main piston and the lever, lube it with some of SRAM's dot grease, put it back in, do a bleed. The lever snaps back to place super quickly like it should. Um, I would say I've not seen it on all the new ETAP Hydro stuff, um, but that's also not been out as long. So it's fixable. Uh, I mean, th- this, yeah, I it's, guess, fix- yeah, it's just like regular heard service. About this sort of issue on, you know, kind of older SRAM guide brakes. Uh, but oh it yeah. Sounds like well, that was the same. That's thing. like a whole warranty thing with the guides. That was where the piston, like, it wasn't made properly. So when things right. heated up, then they would the seals and stuff would swell a little bit, and then the lever would get stuck. This is just like regular, routine maintenance. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, yeah. So, so if your brake levers are flopping back and forth a little bit before right. they do anything, it just needs that done. Okay, well, Jamie, hopefully your mechanic has taken care of that, and if not, now you know what the issue is. And if your mechanic hasn't taken care of it, you should take your bike and put it in a box and send it over to Zach at Boulder Gruppetto so he can fix it for you. Okay, next question from Nicholas Dawes. Uh, So boost hub spacing is something that came about within the last several years. It's still fairly new-ish. And he wants to know, do you see problems with boost adapters, which allow... Uh, the use of non-boost wheels on boost frames and forks. Um, so do you see a problem with those adapters or are they a sensible and affordable way to keep your old wheels in circulation? And are there any front or rear differences? Uh, basically, is there any reason why he shouldn't do this? Because I get the sense that Nicholas is looking to maybe score a deal on some older wheels and wants to use them on a new frame. What do you think here? I mean, I would say it seems like a sensible, easy way to reuse a set of old wheels. Um, I've not seen a ton of them personally, but... They seem like they work well, the ones that I have seen. Um, yeah, you just have to redish, redish the wheel, which is going to shift the rim over and make it stronger than the wheel originally was because it's going to be ev- more even spoke tension on the left and right. But well, I guess it's the, I guess it not going to be as strong. Which adapter and which wheel you're talking about, though, right? Well, because you're pushing out I've the... Seen make the dish go the wrong way. Well, you're pushing out the left side, so you have to shift the rim. Like, say a rear, you're pushing out the, the disc side, so you have to move the rim over as well to center it. But on the front, you'd be making it worse. Yeah. Right. Uh, yes. I, th- I think I've actually only ever done a rear one. Um, but yeah, the other, the only thing I think I've ever been slightly concerned about is that you're using a lot longer rotor bolts. Um, but I've not seen any issues. It's just like, oh, that seems like a really long bolt to hold your rotor on. Um, but well, I'd say if you have, have wheels already, why not try it? They're not that expensive. Yeah, and, and I guess as long as you are taking taking the the care to actually making sure you are using those longer rotor bolts instead of trying to reuse your old ones. Yeah, right. <laughs> then that'll hopefully present a lot of or hopefully prevent a, a very uh, 
unpleasant issue one day. I remembered. This is totally off topic. Uh, on the on the subject of stupid things to do with with brake rotors, I remember two things that I recently that I didn't recently do that I did when that when I was back in my weight weenie days. Oh yeah, three bolts. First of all, yes, you only need three bolts, right? Six bolts. Yeah. No, yeah. three. Save so much weight. Save like I don't know, eleven grams. It was great. Uh, uh, more like like four. Four, <laughs> four yeah. grams. That's the difference between getting the same position in the race and the same position <laughs> in the race. <laughs> and then the other thing that I just recently remembered that I tried were aluminum brake rotors. Oh yeah, stands ones. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had those too. And I still have a pair. And they were so garbage. And really? I actually ripped one of them out of the hub, just like while braking, like you do, yeah. just grabbed it and the entire thing just like came off of the six bolt mount and, and just like ripped in and then got all like squooshed up in the back of my caliper. And anyway, completely tangential, but just while we're talking about things that can go so, wrong with your disc brakes. So just to add to Kaylee's point, uh, what made me stop, well, what made me put my rotor bolts back in? Cause I, I got down to three titanium bolts at one point and I did DNF one yeah, race steel bolts. my rear rotor <laughs> fell off. Um, but then I was working with uh, the DT Swiss distributor and I started to see more and more 240 hubs um, where the rotor mounts were actually cracked. Oh, they just rotate the rotor uh, though. It, You've got three fresh holes. <laughs> the hubs are actually, nice hubs, are actually made um, with the six bolts in mind to separate, you know, to spread the forces around. And when you take those rotor bolts out, uh, you centralize those forces onto fewer points and your hub breaks yeah but like zach said you've got three more mounts you just pivot it and then you, you know you use <laughs> I, w- I would say i'm a big proponent of center lock like every wheel should be center lock yes <laughs> right and, did and, solve this and and yet somehow some weight weenie out there somewhere is taking a file on half of the splines oh, yeah. to save just a little bit of weight because you know like, what do you need all of them for right right you can just nah, deal with half splines these right? are very much uh do as we say not as we do situations yeah. basically i get the sense that i think all four of us at some point went through a pretty serious like mid 2000s mid 2000s mountain bike, <laughs> bike cross country weight weenie phase and so part of this is because it was really hard to get a light mountain bike back then and so you did everything and you'd still have like a 22 pound mountain bike right hardtail Hardtail. (laughs) yeah but maybe maybe not fully recommended the uh the three Mm, bolts instead of six i'm not sure that i ever went quite that extreme because uh by by my memory none of my stuff ever failed oh i definitely my stuff didn't fail yeah my my stuff failed for sure yeah so zach and i zach and i realized at some point we've done the same races that we've done the same races and we had probably had conversations with each other like 10 years before we met on the weight weenies forum (laughs) almost definitely yeah (laughs) which means we probably also met uh, virtually as well my favorite was running amongst amongst adam hansen i'm sure yeah my favorite was running road front derailers with a grip shift on my mountain bike i did this because doubles didn't exist yet nice Yep. Well, I, I used to live in Michigan, and we used to run. You know, I used to run a Dura Ace cassette because we didn't need like you know like oh, yeah. the whole range of a of a mountain bike cassette. You know, we would take off the grading gear up front, and like you know, all sorts of that sort of thing. Oh but, yeah, Campagnolo mm-hmm. front derailleur with a grip yep. shift. Ooh, yeah, Ooh, it was sweet back when it, back when a two by like literally didn't exist. You could the pro move was to use a Dura Ace triple crank with two chain rings, and then shave your seventy three mil frame down to sixty eight so that you could run that. Yeah, no, I used to I used to run a uh, a Cannondale Magic Motorcycle Road crank set. Oh, yeah. Actually, no, wait, hold on. It was a Cannondale Magic Motorcycle mountain bike crank set, but with a road spindle. And I remember the crank arms being so narrow, and it was so close to the frame that I actually had to file the tips of the crank arms down just a little bit so that it didn't rub on my frame. I love it. If you're not filing, you're not trying. That's really that's that's the that's the gist of this, particularly in 2004. Yeah, this would have been in uh, this would have been in like 1998 or 99 or something. Oh, yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Clearly, we're gonna have to have a, a nerd alert podcast where we throwback talk about all these silly weight weenie things that people have done and maybe shouldn't do because I feel like we can go on about that forever. Oh yeah, we I, so much potential. There. Yeah, we've got we've got an entire series on that front. Mm-hmm. But let's let's oh, let's move on. Cracking moving on. Content. All right. Klaus Nordstrom would like any tips for mounting stubborn new tubeless road tires like the Conti GP5000. And he said the fourth one he mounted on a head jet plus rim nearly killed him. 
He said, in the old days, some tubulars could be stretched beforehand. Are there any tr any such tricks for tubeless tires? Ooh, Thanks. Loaded question. Dave, I feel like you are the one to answer this one because you wrote a whole, whole article on this. Yeah, I've got an article on it. Uh, what's it called? Like fitting stubborn tires or something like that? Stubborn I think you were a little tires. more colorful with your language, but yes, there's something to that yeah. effect. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the trick with any tire any tire clincher or tubeless tire is to um, pay attention to the rim shape so when you look at a rim it's got that uh, center channel which actually reduces the diameter of the wheel compared to where the tire sits against the rim bed uh, and you want to make that make use of that as much as you can when you're installing these tires you want to try get the tire into that center channel uh, and sort of push down into that center channel as you work the tire around uh, and that is that is the trick to overcoming all these uh, impossibly tight tires. Because in theory, even tires, even tubeless tires that are really tight, I mean, you should be able to get them at least on yes. without tire levers, or at worst, you may maybe need, one. Depending, yeah, you I may mean, need I had, a tire lever, but um, but yeah, I mean, you shouldn't be needing three plus cracking your rim and a bench vice and three people and. Right, because the other issue there is if you have that much trouble getting it on, even if the tire stretches a bit over time, if you get a flat out on the road and mm -hmm. you need to put a tube in that tire, you may as well just not even bother and just pull out your phone and call somebody to pick you up. 100%. Top tip. Don't ride tubeless road tires. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very loaded question. But, like, that's also, like, there's not a standard for tires and rims. So if you get a combo that's really, right. really tight, like, it's just not going to work. Right. Um, and he yeah asked about like stretching tubulars, um, which I would say tubeless like the bead is is very important. And I have seen people that didn't know about getting the rim or the tire in the center channel, and still used it a bunch of tire levers and actually snapped the bead and then got the tire on the rim, and then it blew off the rim because the bead was no longer intact. So be careful. Yeah. So so yeah. So with that, the tubeless tires are actually what makes. Probably the main feature with a tubeless road tire is that it doesn't stretch under pressure. Right. Uh, so the whole idea of like, you know, where with a tubular, you can kind of pre-stretch it to help yourself getting it onto the rim. Not so really, uh, not recommended for a tubeless tire. You'll probably damage it before you stretch it. Tubeless well, for 30 or 32 millimeters plus. This is the rule. Yeah. I'd also yeah. say be careful stretching tubulars. Because if you, I would say do not stretch them beyond putting them on a rim because I've seen people pop the stitches. Yeah, or, or just tear the base tape even. Yeah. Um, but uh, I will add a qualifier to Kaylee's statement there and uh, say that while I personally am also not necessarily married to the idea of running road tubeless tires for narrower road tires, uh, a lot of people do need to do that. Like, you know, if you're running someplace where or riding someplace where there are a lot of goat heads on the road or a lot of broken glass and kind of that kind of thing. I mean, a lot of people do have an awful lot of success with road tubeless tires, and Kaylee apparently but just rides so I lightly ask, that he never punctures. Those people that need those road tubeless, are they the people that are installing the road tubeless? Uh, that I cannot answer. Good question. Good question. I understand that people, you know, it's, it's, it's a, there is a use case where they're handy. There's also gator skins. Yeah, it's all gator skins. Uh, yeah, I, I, I personally do not find the hassle to be worth yeah. the, the payoff for smaller tires. Uh, anything larger, yeah, for sure. Any, if I'm going to be riding something where I might pinch flat, which is basically you know 30, 32 mil plus dirt roads, gravel, whatever, then for sure I do not want to be dealing with tubes. That's a pain in the butt. But for smaller road tires, uh, I just yeah, I think I think it's not. It's not strictly necessary for most people. Yes, if you live in Goathead land, then yeah, suck it up. Figure out the, figure out a good tubeless uh, solution. Do some experimenting. Ask around. Find out what tires work with what rims, because that really is the problem we're talking about here, right? Is that it's that if you have a large diameter rim on the upper end of of sort of what's acceptable and a small tire, it is entirely feasible that you're just not going to get that thing on. So, right. be careful. Moving on. We have a couple questions here on handlebar tape, actually, and this is kind of funny because for, for as simple as handlebar tape kind of seems to be for people who have done it an awful lot, if you don't do it often or haven't done it before, it does kind of seem like this weird black art. Um, so we have a couple questions, one from Chris Stocks and another one from Colby. I don't have his last name, but he goes by DJ Halflink on Twitter. Mm. Um, 
So questions are, can you tell us how to finish that last part of your bar tape to get that pro look? And then also, what direction do you wrap the bars in? And at the levers, do you do a figure eight or a little, little swatch of tape to cover up that gap? What kind of finishing tape do you use? And do you overlap on the bar only or only on the, or do you, go, do you use a finishing tape on the bar tape and the bar? You know, and what do you use to hold down the cable and housing? So we'll start from the beginning, I guess. Uh, I would use electrical tape to hold the housing against the bar. Um, just wrap it along so it holds it in place. Some people like to do a couple strips here and there. Some people like to wrap the whole thing. Both gets the same job done. Um, bar tape, in terms of wrapping direction, I would personally, I go, so let's say we're on the right side. I go from the inside over the top towards the outside of the bike. Um, and then I do the figure eight. Definitely never use the cheater strip. Um, cheater strip. Yeah, I would say I use the little strip only on, I think it's campy, campy. 11, 12, the hoods come back, but the 11, the hoods don't come back far enough. Um, but otherwise, never use that strip. Um, in terms of a direction, I would say as long as you're wrapping the bars properly, it doesn't matter what direction you go. They're not going to come unraveled. Um, some people are like, oh, you rotate your hands this way and you'll unravel the bar tape. But as long as you like stretch the bar tape properly with good tension on it and wrap them evenly, they're not going to just unravel themselves. Um, and as long as you start from the end and work toward the center as opposed to starting from the center and working Oh, yeah. Out. Always start at the, the end of the handlebar, not at the stem. Um, for finishing, nice pair of scissors. Cut a nice even diagonal line on the bar tape. Um, most people use electrical tape. I prefer to use, I have some adhesive cloth tape. It just does the same thing, but just in the summer it doesn't get hot and sticky and disgusting. Um, That's what Peter Sagan has on his bike. Yeah. I think the Ineos mechanics were just like super yeah, glue. Yeah, you can do, that's like an old, Crazy an old glue. school thing to use super glue. Yep. Um, yeah. So they, they're doing that for their aero handlebars because um, they use the most in the Pinarello handlebar, which isn't a round shape. Um, so it sort of doesn't look so great and the electrical tape doesn't do such a great job in that sense. So No, they're using it for round like bars too. It's an uneven surface. Are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, I've only seen it on there. It's a clean look. Oh, I yeah. like it. But I also like the cloth. It's a pain to undo. You just have to take a knife straight through it. Um, yeah, they they yeah, but they, they yeah, only under, yeah, they, you know they've got excess yeah replace their bar tape, bar tape all the time. So fun fun little fun little story that that I should tell here that this was way back in the day. Um, I I for the life of me cannot remember his name now, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit that. But uh, he was my old Oakley rep back in the bike shop days in Michigan, and he was a pro mechanic for a while. And he's I think it was him who was telling me this. He. Uh, he had a coworker or a fellow mechanic or someone who had this habit of, you know, after they wrapped the bars, they would take a razor blade, a utility knife, and run it all the way around the circumference of the bar to get that nice sharp edge on the end of his handlebar tape. Don't do that with your carbon bars. <laughs> uh, don't do that with aluminum bars yeah, either, yeah. because these were all aluminum bars back then. Because what you do at that point, you put you're basically yeah, putting you're a them. big channel in your handlebars at a point of a lot of stress and go figure a lot of those handlebars broke so don't do that <laughs> definitely don't recommend <laughs> top tip don't try cutting your handlebars in half yeah i would say in terms of no. bar tape that's one of the number one ways you can tell a good mechanic from a bad mechanic because if they can wrap their bars well then they actually care what they're doing and if it looks like garbage then they're probably not the greatest mm. That's good because that is a good indicator of what, about how much they care about everything else that they touch yeah. on the bike. Attention it's like detail. one of the easiest things to do, but it's also one of the easiest things to make look like garbage. So one of the one of the ways to to know if you're onto a pro wrap is if your two pieces of um, excess tape when you do your cut match each other left to right, like what you've got left over. Then then that's sort of like the mark of. Uh, of, uh, of hitting the that mark, was right? definitely the trend of some cool hip Instagram mechanics for a while to yeah. every time they wrap bars yeah. post pictures of that oh yeah. oh interesting yeah but Instagram is a lie and I bet they yeah. just sliced it yeah so you could very like easily lie about that. yeah like, look, they, I they wrapped them perfectly <laughs> that is true that is true or you know like you know like some somebody could just you know you just sell a bunch of pre-cut ones just so you can have a whole bunch of them of different colors yeah. it's like it's like if you go to the velo factory in taiwan and you get like the sample sheet that has all the different colors on there 
And then, like, you just have to get two of them and then cut all the angles in there, and there you go. So all pro. your samples are the same. So pro. Uh, moving on, we have a question from Neil Winkleman. And, Dave, I believe you wanted to answer this one. What is the best way to get a stubborn hub end cap off of in, oh, a stubborn end cap and free hub off of a Roval wheel, which I believe uh, is basically uh, a DT Swiss 240 hub? Uh, it's supposed to just pull out right off, and it does not. He said he cannot get it to budge. He's scared of wrecking something. He's resorted to dribbling oil in to silence a creek, but it needs to be serviced. What is he supposed to be doing here? Uh, so for this one, you need a bench vise. So it the, the process kind of does vary a little bit, depending if it's a through axle or quick release hub. But basically, you need a bench vise and then some uh, axle vise jaws. Uh, or axle jaws in the vise and you, you sort of um, clamp down the, the the end cap and you want to try remove that end cap first. So you can kind of uh, put a little bit of upward pressure on one end of the wheel and then give the opposite end of the wheel a quick tap and that should dislodge that end cap. Hammer. Jack, anything to add? I would say if, let's say like this, he's trying to get the free hub off. If the drive side is really stuck and even with the mm-hmm. bench vise, you can't get it off. If you can get the left side off, then you can get in there and use a punch or something to push push off through the other side. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so to add to that, if um, the free hubs can get stuck on, if you can get, uh, Zach's idea is very good. If you can also, if you can get the drive side end cap off and the free hub is still stuck on, then the trick is to use a cassette lock ring and a suitable sized coin and you put the coin inside the lock ring, which closes off the end of the free hub, and then you get your punch, and you stick it through from the left-hand side of the hub, and you knock off the free hub that way. Oh, that's a good one, Dave. Yeah, very nice. There are some yeah, people well, welding these up. Um, I do have a custom tool made by Adam. There you go. <laughs> so I don't have to resort to using a coin. Um, <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> it costs more than uh, a coin in a lock ring. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about a what about a blind bearing remover like a slide hammer basically yeah uh who's it unar unor unior yeah they make a, a end cap puller that's pretty good for through axle ones yeah yeah so that works with your 12 and 15 mil through axles the unior one which i i've got one i, I love it but yeah if you're dealing with a quick release hub you you're going to need to go back to the bench the bench yeah. vice how, and, how, uh, how did i know that he yeah, had that you have one of course you have one why wouldn't you have one nerds i have two <laughs> bunch of nerds nerd nerd with singular because i do not have one Zach's a nerd nor too. do i feel like the need for one. <laughs> oh my all right well we are going to get super super nerdy with our last question here and despite the fact that this is kind of a special occasion that we have zach back on here this one is aimed straight at dave because he is going to get super 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 nerdy because Uh-oh. on our velo club slack channel one of the questions that people have been asking most frequently recently is, this is sort of like the bike maintenance equivalent of, I guess, quarantine baking or something, because all of a sudden people are prepping their chains and and doing the whole hot wax treatment in crock pots. So uh, we have gotten a lot of questions asking, how exactly is the best way to do this? What size of ultrasonic cleaner should people buy? Do you need an ultrasonic cleaner? What sort of solvent should you use? Basically, how are they supposed to be doing this and what are people doing wrong? So, Dave, I'm going to go ahead and just leave this recording, and I'm going to come back in about an hour. So let's just, you can go back. I'm just going to go and have dinner. I feel like I'm going to start talking, and then Kelly's going to edit it so the sound just sort of fades away. <laughs> uh, Correct. Which wah, would be wah, funny. Wah, wah, like, wah, wah. If that happens right now, uh, that well played. Um, but, yeah, so I do have a really detailed article on this, which is like the ultimate guide to chain cleaning. And if this applies to you with the chain wax prep, you basically just scroll down to the bottom of that article and go to the obsessive section. And this, it'll have a step-by-step guide for this. Um, wah, 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 wah. A few quick things, though. Uh, I don't believe an ultrasonic cleaner is necessary. And I think a lot of people using them are actually using them thinking they're getting their chain clean and they're actually not getting their chain nearly as clean as uh, as needed for waxing. Uh, mainly because the ultrasonic cleaner, you're basically just bathing your chain in dirty solvents, which are keeping a whole lot of grit and stuff inside of your chain. It's like mopping your floor with the same bucket. Exactly. So ultrasonic cleaners are awesome if you just like keep replacing the fluids in them until they until the fluid remains clean. But that's a lot of fluid and you can achieve the same results with a lot less fluid by using like a jar and shaking it 
Um, so yeah, so getting a chain clean enough for waxing, you sort of need to get it down to the bare metal and that takes some pretty heavy solvents. Uh, so my tactics basically to use a jar and use as little solvent as possible. Um, and then you go from there and you basically just keep shaking it until that solvent is clear. And then you finish it off with a alcohol wash. Uh, so you're making sure there's no residue left and then you're done. Kelly, like wake up. Put everyone to sleep. Is it over already? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was just putting myself down for a nap. I was gonna come back in like yeah. twenty minutes. <laughs> so that was that wasn't too bad. I mean, Could've it's, it's not really that big of a deal. But I, I agree. I mean, if, if for a lot of people using ultrasonic cleaners, and I do use one, um, you know, if you don't change the solvent tank, or if you don't change the solvent in the tank, then yeah, you are basically just washing your stuff in dirty solvent. Um, what about uh, using a ultrasonic tank with a small jar in the tank? Ooh, double yeah, whammy. that would work. So, yes, you can definitely do that. Um, or uh, like a small plastic container. Um, I believe what, like a, a glass beaker is sort of the recommended way to do that. Uh, and you still get the ultrasonic effect. Um, you can absolutely do that. But uh, keep in mind that you'll probably only be able to fit your chain into that so all the other components will need a bit more scrubbing is ultrasonic cleaner actually just sound waves how's this it feel? is it is it is a matter of fact it's really cool actually science and it works exceptionally well Hashtag as far science. as just general cleaning goes yeah i mean like you know it's what solvent do you use in yours what solvent do i use in what mine? solvent do i use uh simple green actually makes a solvent that is specifically for the aerospace industry that uh hmm. That's designed to not eat barrel aluminum because uh, eating barrel aluminum in the aerospace industry would be obviously bad for a lot of reasons. Um, so I generally use that and I don't really tend to dilute it a whole lot because I just like it to work pretty quickly. I just don't want to like, keep my parts in there for very long. And that actually works pretty well. It's commercially available. And, like you can just buy it at, you know, online, Amazon, whatever. Um, so that is my preferred solvent of choice. And it's not very expensive either. Cool. So, yeah, so I'd say with that, that should get your chain almost ready and then you just need to do one final flush with alcohol in a jar and then your chain is ready for wax mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. zach you seem very skeptical right now I you, mean, you seem like you're just not believing in this i if i'm honest i'm not the biggest fan of waxing and chains i think if you're trying to win pro level races where single watts matter then yes great so but so with zach uh, <laughs> zach is like basically every other pro mechanic which knows how to very efficiently clean a bike and knows how to look after a bike uh, and doesn't see the issue in um, just using chain lube and then keeping care of that so it doesn't become a disgusting greasy mess um, but not everyone's like that and the wax kind of serves the purpose I would, of I would the argue people the, that people, the people that aren't like that clean. aren't going to take the time to wax their chain properly You'd, you'd be surprised. I mean, I, I'm mm. honestly really shocked at how, I mean, the reason why I brought this up in general is I was really shocked at how many people are asking about this specifically for the purposes of sort of extending their maintenance. I mean, you wouldn't just believe so that, how many bikes I see, though, that people bring in that have tried waxing their chains, swear by it, that have so much wax buildup on everything that it will not shift. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Like literally will not stay in the 11 tooth cog because the chain will not fit down on it. Oh my, that's, that's a lot of wax. Yeah. That's, that's a drip lube wax, right? Like, a nope, that's like yeah. people using a crock pot and going to town on it. <laughs> are, are they putting like their entire bike in it? Like how, how do you even do that? I don't have the answers for you. <laughs> so that, that kind of goes back to, um, if you use like cheap candles, it'll probably build up like that. Whereas the higher end paraffin wax, like in molten speed wax, it should kind of just flake off and stay dry and not build up. Um, so yeah, so maybe save the scented candles for the house. I use earwax. You're, you're yeah. saying that my lavender Yankee candles are not ideal for this? <laughs> no, they will you make have to use the Christmas noise. scented ones. Oh man, dude, I've been doing this all wrong. My God. I'm telling you, earwax. It's great. It's the future. Oh, ooh, ooh. Mm. Melt it down. Right. On, swish it around. On that note. Put your chain in it. Takes a little while to get enough, but if you harvest daily. Hmm. <laughs> well waxed chain <laughs> just all staring at me that is a I really really I disgusting thought i will um I would, on that note i think it's time to wrap this thing up because that is truly disgusting you're welcome uh -huh. <laughs>
Mm -hmm. There you go. Well, I will leave everyone who's listening to head over to eBay and Amazon to shop for their new ultrasonic cleaners or not and crockpots. Um, but if you or just some jars or some or some jars, a bunch of mason jars, which are apparently are hard to come by right now. Apparently, you know, in addition mm -hmm. to yeast and flour, mason jars are a hot commodity at the moment. Everyone's crafting. People are also yeah. now canning. Or you could just buy some kitchen, brushes and some degreaser and some regular chain lube. That, that's so boring. <laughs> why would you do that? Like, like... I'm on team Zach here. Uh, I'm on. Why, I'm on team degreaser so and regular chain, chain lube. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just like cleans off really easily. You just put it on. You go for a ride. You don't have to cook in your kitchen with your chain. Quarantine no, you could though. get a crock yeah. pot dedicated to the garage like I have, so then you don't have to be in the kitchen. I mean, like I said, I'm I'm totally for it for people that are trying to win races at a high level where every watt matters. But for daily riding, so, I don't understand. So, so you're saying I should I should not have bothered taking apart my indoor Zwift trainer and ultrasonic cleaning everything and then dipping everything in hot wax to optimize the friction characteristics? You're saying for that's Zwift, not definitely not because you just run it off your crank power and then it doesn't matter. <laughs> Oh, man, man, totally losing. I don't know why. Yeah, why haven't people figured this one out yet? It's yeah, good question. Like, uh, well, actually, you know, just to, to, I guess to toss in another story. I did see something on Twitter a while ago. Someone was uh, was powering their their Zwift software using a cadence magnet and a salad spinner. Cool. <laughs> that was one of my favorite. That was my favorite thing of that week that I saw. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was a good one. That was. A I think it was the same guy that put his his scooter onto onto rollers. That is a very. I bet that dude's really fun on his local group ride. <laughs> yep, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the type of uh, Zwift cheating that the algorithms are still unable to pick up. <laughs> <laughs> the math is. Ah yes, trying to keep up with human creativity. Anyway, it's time for dinner for me. I'm hungry, so I'm gonna wrap this thing up. So. People, if you liked what you heard here, please consider giving us a review on iTunes because it really does help more people find us. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss a future episode. And in the meantime, everyone stay safe, please. Thanks for listening, and we will see you back here in another two weeks, hopefully with Zach as well. And we may even bring back, what bike should I buy? Yes. So I'll be there. We'll bring that back. All right, Zach, can, can we count on you for that one? Yep, promise. All right, we're going to hold you to that. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back in a couple weeks. Bye, everyone.